0: Good evening, now I think I didn't have my glasses on, but I thought I saw Chris Jensen walking in there, you know he's kind of hard to miss when you see him walk by, but uh, you back there Chris? You got the whole Jensen clan or just a, just one, I, okay, I, was it today's Tanner's birthday? How, say it again Chris, Tanner's 20 today, how many of you remembered the, the Jensen's when they were here and uh, Tanner, yeah. Well, you can tell them the whole church wished him a happy birthday today. Well, how are you tonight? Feeling good? Get a nap? Are you all charged up for 2 Corinthians? I feel it. It's in the room. Did you get a, did you get a handout? Um, I don't know who has the handouts, but were they sitting in the back when you came in? They're gone. They're printing more. Wow. I don't know that that's ever happened that they ran out of handouts. Um, if you, well, I bet somebody will come in. If I see somebody walk in with some, I'll, I may stop and say who needed one. But um, I, if if you didn't get one tonight, I bet you there'll be some tomorrow night for you. So uh, I want you to be able to follow along. You don't have to. You don't have to have it every night, but it'll give you something to follow along with. You can write some notes on it if you'd like. Um, and so Second Corinthians now. I feel if you feel like we're jumping into to the middle of something because this the Second Corinthians and you, well what about First Corinthians? That's that's the way uh, it's it's life way. It's the Southern Baptist Convention. They designated Second Corinthians this year, uh, and I think over this is I don't know nineteen years I've been at OBU. so I think it's not going to be too many years we're going to have covered everything. I've done First Corinthians here. It was just a long time ago. Uh, so I, I expect we'll get back around to First Corinthians if I live long enough, and and uh, Owen keeps inviting me, we'll get back around to it soon enough. But this year it's Second Corinthians. So uh, let's get started with a little background information. So if you if you got that handout and get it out, there's a couple of pages at the beginning that are introductory materials, and so I want to begin there, and we're going to get into the text some tonight. Also, uh, I think if you if if I asked. The, the typical believer, what do you know about First Corinthians or Second Corinthians? Tell me about Second Corinthians. Uh, I have a feeling you would not have as much information as you would if I asked you about First Corinthians. I think First Corinthians is a much, much, much more familiar letter to most believers. And that, I believe the popularity and the familiarity of First Corinthians causes Second Corinthians to get lost in the shuffle just a little bit. It's like, the, it's like the little brother next to this giant that gets overlooked rather easily. And in fact, I, I put in here that some people call Second Corinthians a, a sleeper. You know what a sleeper is? Something that might not be valued highly enough. Maybe if you're thinking about sports, a team, not many people are given much of a chance and then they seem to come out of nowhere and say, well, where'd they come from? Second Corinthians is, is one of those letters. It might not be as familiar, but when you start spending time in it, I think you'll be surprised at what you find there and just how rich uh, that it is. And so uh, what I would appeal to you to do over tonight, tomorrow, Tuesday, Wednesday, try to read through Second Corinthians this week. Now I'm going to suggest uh, a, uh, an outline. Here's how you I would encourage you to read through it. Start reading it tonight. And try to read through seven sixteen, chapter seven verse sixteen. Try to read through that much uh, before tomorrow night. One one through seven sixteen. That's doable for most of you, I think. So try to do that. One one through seven sixteen. Then before Tuesday night, try to read chapters eight and nine. And then before Wednesday night, ten through thirteen. So if we divide it up that way, now if it were a shorter letter, I'd just say, read all, th- sit down and read through it three times this week. I'm not, I, I understand the realities of life for many people, so if you can just before tomorrow night, read 1-1 through seven sixteen, Okay? I'll remind you then tomorrow night, read chapters 8 and 9 for, for Tuesday night, and then for Wednesday night, uh, 9, or excuse me, 8-9, uh, 10 through 13. Okay? I see some more handouts. Who needs a handout? I see hands. I see a couple over here behind you. Somebody somebody, help him. How many do you have? Not very many. We, you might, if you've got one, you might sell one to a neighbor. <laughs> I think they're going for a dollar outside. Uh, so he's handing... Bruce, if you've got an extra one. He's holding one. You got you got another one? I think some folks over here needed one. Oh, and you can't believe how hot these things are, man. <laughs> I couldn't make you take these when you were a student. Okay. Let's get started. How about a little authorship and date? Nothing more riveting than authorship date kinds of issues, but we're not going to spend much time on that because it's pretty well a settled issue. Uh, Paul is the author, uh, and he writes 2 Corinthians about 56 A.D. Uh, and, and so maybe I'll say a little bit more about that, but let me, let me say something about the city of Corinth. Just, just a little bit about Corinth, the city. Uh, Corinth was a city about 40 miles south of Athens. And situated on a narrow strip of land, and the, had two ports on each side, and the two ports were were joined. You could actually pull a ship across uh, between them. The, the Olco's Road, it was called. They would load ships onto a pulley with wheels, and they could you could pull a ship across this isthmus from from a port uh, from the Aegean and a port to the Adriatic Sea. So you had two seas. And you had a port to each of those seas on each end of the city of Corinth. And so this was very good for for Corinth's uh, travel, tourism, and and just folks passing through. And so it's good for the economy. Corinth becomes a very prominent, populated, bustling city. About 146 BC, (laughs) B.C., it was destroyed by the Romans. Uh, about forty four BC it was rebuilt by Julius Caesar. That city, rebuilt by the Romans, was resettled primarily with folks who were not of the high, not the highest on the social ladder, but a city that once again bounces back very quickly because of it the where it is situated on this isthmus, on this strip of land with a port to each of these two significant seas. And ships would want to come through here because it, it cut off about six days sailing to the south uh, through some pretty treacherous waters at certain times of the year. So it becomes a prominent city. It's a city with economic, uh, good economic development. It's also a city with a lot of different ideologies. You would expect a lot of different worldviews to be crashing together in a place like Corinth. And I think when you start to read 1 Corinthians and you read 2 Corinthians, you see a lot of these issues uh, becoming prominent. You can see why they struggle with some of the issues they do, given the kind of city it is and and where it is situated. So I think it's important to recognize what kind of city this is. Uh, It was known for its immorality. The word Corinthianize came to be identified with committing sexual immorality. It's kind of like a city called Sin City. Don't we have one of those? is in Las Vegas called sin City, you know it's kind of like one of those what happens at Corinth stays at Corinth kinds of kinds of things i I used to think I used to think Las Vegas was a good comparison to it, but las Vegas is it's landlocked uh, then I went to New Orleans and uh yep giving a shout out amanda to new orleans uh if you spend a friday you know a, 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 a reasonably young lad from southeastern kentucky go to the french quarter on a friday night about midnight and not a good idea amanda and uh, and suddenly i determined you know what i think this is more like corinth than las vegas uh, ancient corinth that is um and, and so i think we might have some idea the kind of city corinth was i, I think all this may give us some insight as we get in into the letter now I want to move to, if you're looking there, Roman numeral three on the, on the materials, on the introduction. The most important part of the introduction is understanding what's going on in the relationship between Paul and these believers. When he writes 2 Corinthians in 56, we, we sort of find ourselves thrown into a relationship that's been going on for six years. The relationship begins in AD 50. And he's written them already, uh, three other letters, or two previous letters. It's at least the third letter that he's written them when we get to Second Corinthians. He's visited there. I mean, they have a relationship. And I think it's important to know something about that relationship when we read Second Corinthians. So, so let's walk through the relationship a little bit. The relationship begins when Paul establishes the church in, in A.D. 50. That's where it begins. As far as we know, there was no work there. There was no church there until Paul establishes a church there in AD 50. So he's sort of the spiritual father of this congregation. He's their apostle. He planted the church there. He's a church planter. He had stayed there about 18 months after he established the church. So he'd been a church planter. He'd been a pastor to them. And then, and, and all along he was their apostle, and so he may leave, he may no longer be their pastor, but he's still their apostle and their spiritual father. He founded the church. Um, sometime after he left there, and you can read about that visit in Acts chapter eighteen. We 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 you you would be familiar with quite a bit that goes on there. Um, he meets Priscilla and Aquila there. The the synagogue leader, uh, Crispus, becomes a believer there, which is a big deal. You know, the leader of Judaism in that city, Corinth, becomes a believer that Jesus is the Messiah. That's pretty significant. That says he was having success preaching uh, in the synagogue, so Jews are coming to believe. Uh, He ends up, because of his success in the synagogue, being dragged before uh, the Roman governor there named Gallio, and Gallio puts Paul on some sort of trial and determines Paul's not done anything illegal. He's not broken Roman law in any way. The result of that is the current synagogue leader, because the previous one had come to believe Jesus was the Messiah and was no longer the synagogue leader, the current synagogue leader, Sosthenes, was beaten. So they tried to get Paul in trouble. Paul was exonerated, but the current synagogue leader was beaten as a result of that. Uh, And so you can read in in Acts 18 about his visit there and the establishment of the church there. Sometime after he leaves, so that's A.D. 50, stays till about 52. Sometime after he leaves, he writes them a letter. We will call it letter A. It is not our 1 Corinthians. It's a letter we no longer have. We know about it because in our 1 Corinthians, chapter 5, verse 9, he says... I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral believers or with with immoral people. I did not at all mean immoral unbelievers. I meant you should not associate with immoral so-called believers. Now that's what he says in 1 Corinthians 5, 9. I wrote you in my letter. Well, what letter did he write that? It's a letter we don't have. So in this letter A... Uh, he is trying to tell them about associating with immoral people. Do you think that would be an issue in a place like Corinth? In a city known for its immorality, Christians are going to encounter this struggle about, well, how do we live out our faith? How are we salt? How are we light? And, and apparently, Paul had tried to tell them he did, they shouldn't associate with immoral uh, believers. They took it to mean that they shouldn't associate with immoral people at all. And Paul Paul writes to correct that. That's not what I meant Uh, in in 1 Corinthians. He writes to say, I didn't mean that. You'd have to go out of the world if you were not going to associate with anybody that was immoral. And further, how would you be salt and light to them if you had no association? So if you're looking on your your, uh, outline there, that would be letter A. A previous letter that we no longer have. We know about it because we read about it in our 1 Corinthians. After that letter A, he receives visitors from Corinth. I'm sure he was interested to know how that letter went. Uh, and that's probably where he finds out they misunderstood it. Some of those people he receives a report from, are they're, they're called Chloe's people. I don't know who Chloe is, and I don't know who her people are. Uh, but they're people that talked to Paul and he mentions them in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. And, and it's from Chloe's people that he hears that there's division in the church. And all the issues he addresses then in 1 Corinthians, he learns about from Chloe's people and then from others. At the end of 1 Corinthians, he talks about a Stephanus and a Fortinatus and an Achaicus. These are people from Corinth that he, he had talked to. And they surely told him about all the problems going on in the church at Corinth. And so he's going to address those in another letter. So that leads us to letter B. If you're looking on your materials there, there, letter B. That's our 1 Corinthians. Uh, This is written about 55. So we're about five years into a relationship with this church. He establishes the church. He stays 18 months between 50 and 52. Communication continues by letter, and other people come in to talk to him, uh, and then he decides to write what we call 1 Corinthians. I'll call it letter B in, in 55, and he's at Ephesus when he writes this, where he was spending quite a bit of time by that point in his ministry. Now, how did, how, what is the tone of, of, the, of the letter 1 Corinthians? How's the relationship going when you read 1 Corinthians? Well, it, it's, it's a little ambiguous, I don't think he feels like he's losing them, but he does know they have lots of issues, lots of problems. And you read through 1 Corinthians, you say, man, this was a troubled church by this time. I mean, this is a church that's dealing with disunity, disharmony. Paul spends four chapters, the first four chapters, after he says hello, and he gives some thanksgiving, he spends three full chapters and part of a fourth dealing with the problem of division and disunity. He spends more time on that issue than any other issue in 1 Corinthians. That is the number one problem they have. There's disunity, disharmony in the body. That's always the number one problem. If a church is divided, if there's disunity, if there's disharmony, if people are split, if they're divided, if there's constantly this spirit of division in a congregation, it doesn't matter what other problems they have, you won't be able to solve those until you've solved the first problem. And nothing makes the gospel a lie more than individuals to talk about reconciliation and forgiveness and being in Christ and then have a church that cannot get along. Nothing makes the gospel a lie more than that. And that's precisely what Paul had heard about the church at Corinth from all the people he talked to. And so he spends essentially the first four chapters of of what I'm calling letter B, our first Corinthians, dealing with the problem of disunity, disharmony. This was a troubled church. He'd also heard that a man was having sexual relations with his stepmother. And, And even more egregious to him than that individual's act was that the church was not taking any action against the person there was no church discipline they were just looking the other way winking at it and that's what paul was really upset about and so he says to them in 1 corinthians 5 when you all come together here's what you're going to do you're going to turn that person over to satan for the destruction of their flesh wow that sounds harsh uh and i, I don't think that there's nothing punitive about what he wanted to do. It was all redemptive. It was church discipline for the purpose of helping this person realize the, how egregious their sin was, and hopefully they'd repent of it and come back into fellowship with the church. It wasn't for punishment. It was redemptive. Church discipline is, is, is always about the redemption of the individual who is sinning. But it's also about protecting the reputation of the church. And if you've got people committing known acts of immorality and they are identified with a particular church and the church takes no action with respect to that that harms the reputation of the church and ultimately the name of Christ so church discipline is a 1st Corinthians issue we're not going to have to deal with it in 2nd Corinthians but it's worth mentioning this church was a troubled church when he writes 1st Corinthians he's addressing issues of a troubled church in chapter 6 of 1st Corinthians he has to tell them that you men shouldn't be spending your money on prostitutes. I mean, you're thinking, duh, but, but that's what's going on there. Well, you'd think it was the University of Louisville basketball program going on there, there. Uh, is this recorded? Uh, nobody's going to listen to it from Louisville. Uh, I'm a Kentuckian, you know, I'm a UK guy, so I, I don't take any joy in some other program's demise, but now nah, I'll move along. That's bad. Okay, everybody can acknowledge that's not a way a Christian man should be spending his time nor his money. But Paul's having to address that in 1 Corinthians. And then at chapter 7, 1 Corinthians 7, he says, uh, Now concerning the things about which you wrote in your letter. Ah, so letters are not only going from Paul to them. Letters are coming from the church at Corinth to Paul, asking him questions about issues. And so beginning at 1 Corinthians 7, he starts to deal with all the issues they are raising to him in a letter. And that involves, I know it you think, boy, these people have lots of crazy ideas. Should, should married people have sexual relations? Should, if you are a virgin, should you remain a virgin? Or should you get married? Uh, if you're married, should you get divorced and devote all your time to the kingdom? I mean, they're, they're very confused about issues of sexual ethics and divorce, and so he spends a whole chapter, 1 Corinthians 7, dealing with those issues. Meat sacrificed to idols is a problem for them. He spends three chapters on that, whether or not a Christian should eat meat sacrificed to idols, 8, 9, and 10. In chapter 11, it's about women, if they pray or prophesy and worship, they should have their heads covered. I think that was very much a cultural issue, but it was one that spoke to modesty, decency, and worship, so he had to address that. Spiritual gifts. They had lots of spiritual gifts. They were incredibly gifted by God in spiritual gifts, and yet they were abusing those gifts and apparently valuing speaking in tongues over all the others. They were questioning the resurrection of the body. Paul takes that up in 1 Corinthians 15. Some were denying the resurrection of the body. Not the resurrection of Jesus, but the resurrection of others. And uh, then at the end, chapter 16, he says, <clears throat> Oh, and about the collection you're supposed to be taking. And at the beginning of chapter 16, he reminds them, they're supposed to be taking an offering for the church at Jerusalem. And uh, they, weren't, they weren't getting that taken in the manner he wanted them to. And so he raises that issue. So you remember that, because that's going to come up in 2 Corinthians. So he writes a second letter, letter B. We call it 1 Corinthians. How did that go? How did they receive that letter? Did they just receive it and that answered all their questions and they implemented all the things Paul had told them to do? Let me read you one passage from 1 Corinthians and see if it doesn't let you in on, it foreshadows what's about to come. In 1 Corinthians, when he's talking about the division in the church, he says at verse, we'll start at verse 17. So this is 1 Corinthians four seventeen. He says, for this reason, I sent you Timothy, who's my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ Jesus as I teach them everywhere in every church. But some of you, thinking that I'm not coming to you, have become arrogant. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out, not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God depends not on talk, but on power. What would you prefer? Am I to come to you with a rod of discipline, or with love in a spirit of gentleness? And what do you think about that? Doesn't that foreshadow the conflict that's going to happen between, he's threatening them, that there's some there who say, I'm not coming there, arrogant ones. And they talk as if I'm never coming back. Oh, Paul, he told you to be back, but he's not coming back. You can't pay any attention to him. He says, well, I'm coming. And you better implement the things I'm telling you in this letter, or else I will come with a rod of discipline. Now, it's up to you. If you'll implement the things I'm saying, I'll come in in love with the spirit of gentleness and peace. But that's up to you. Well, how did they respond to that? Not the way he wanted them to. And we read then, when we get into 2 Corinthians, we read about another visit. We don't read a lot, but it's clear. It occurs. Look at 2 Corinthians now, chapter 2, verse 1. He says, So I made up my mind not to make you another painful visit. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And he mentions it here, and he'll mention it again in chapter 7. But he, he mentions a visit he made that he calls a painful visit. Now, this is not his first visit, the one where he established the church. This is a visit he makes after he wrote, what we call 1st Corinthians the one where he said I'm coming and if you want me to come with love and the spirit of gentleness and peace well then put into action what I'm saying and if you don't then I'll come with the rod of discipline and guess what happened he didn't like the way they responded and he made a visit and he came with the rod of discipline a stick not, not with love and gentleness and peace and it must have gone horribly wrong He does not want to make another painful visit. And as we read on in 2 Corinthians, we get more insight into what happened. When he arrived there, angry at them, ready to fix them, because they're not responding the way they should to their apostle, they did not take his visit well. And in fact, somebody, an individual in the church there, stood up to Paul, must have made accusations against him, challenged his authority, and the church there did nothing. They didn't come to his defense. They didn't didn't speak up on behalf of Paul. And Paul was crushed by the way this visit went. Now that happens somewhere between late 55, early 56. So we're six years into the relationship and things are going down the tube. Painful visit occurs. Paul leaves and things are worse than ever. And Paul fears that maybe, perhaps, he's lost this church. What would a man like Paul do if he can't go back and make a visit? Because that's already not worked. That went bad. He can't do that again. But he doesn't want to give up on them. What can he do? What does he like to do? What's he good at? Letter writing. So he writes another letter. We'll call it letter C uh, like letter A, it's a letter we do not have. We'll keep reading here in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and, and and listen to what he says about this letter. Look at verse 3. So it's 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 3. Just after he mentioned the painful visit. He says, And I wrote as I did, so that when I came... I might not suffer pain from those who've made me rejoice, for I am confident about all of you that my joy would be the joy of all of you. For I wrote you out of much distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. So the the painful visit didn't work, so that led to a painful letter. At least a letter that at the time he wrote it was painful. It caused tears when he wrote it. It must have been smoking hot. Because he writes other letters that I would call painful letters, and he doesn't seem to think they're, they're such. Like the letter to the Galatians. Man, that's a smoking hot letter. He doesn't ever say that it caused him any pain to write that letter. But this letter, he says, the one we don't have, it caused him pain. He wrote it with tears running down his cheeks. He wrote it with an achy heart. The tearful letter. Well, guess what? He sent it with Titus, one of his co-workers. He writes it from Ephesus. He hands that letter to Titus. He says, now take this to the church. He probably said, it's smoking hot. They might not like it. You better get out of town in a hurry if they don't, because you're my representative. Who knows what this church might do, but here it is. Now, I want you to get there quickly with it, read it to them, see how they respond, and let's meet at Troas. That's on the way. So Paul sends Titus off with a letter, and he waits, and he waits. You get the idea that Paul's a particularly patient man? I don't. He just can't wait, so he goes to Troas where he's supposed to meet Titus, and Titus is not there. Now, he doesn't just waste his time. He starts doing ministry there. In fact, he says there was an open door of ministry there for me, and he waits, and he waits, and he waits, and Titus doesn't show up, and he can't wait any longer, so he leaves Troas and continues on the way to Corinth. Corinth. And he meets up with Titus somewhere in Macedonia, which is the province just north of the province of Achaia where Corinth is. And he meets up with with Titus there. And guess what Titus says? It worked. The tearful letter brought them to repentance. They dealt with that person who stood up and got in your face. They're sorry they didn't defend you. They're implementing the things you want them to your relationship is on the road to reconciliation. And Paul says, yes. And right there, somewhere in Macedonia, he writes letter D. That's Second Corinthians. That's the letter we're going to look at. 56 from somewhere in Macedonia. He does not go back to Ephesus to his office where he can write right there. Apparently on the spot, somewhere something like that, from Macedonia, he writes this letter that we call Second Corinthians. And it rejoices that the relationship is on the way to reconciliation. In fact, the first seven chapters essentially is his he's showing his gratitude that the relationship is in the process of, of being restored. So much so that he's ready in chapters 8 and 9 to start talking about that collection they were supposed to have taken a year ago that he mentioned in 1 Corinthians. But I guess the problems have derailed them and they hadn't taken the collection. And so he tells them two chapters encouraging them that they need to give and they need to give generously and they need to give immediately to this offering he's taking for the church at Jerusalem. And then he gets to the last part of the letter, chapters 10 through 13, and then he goes on the defensive again, and some people have suggested maybe that ten through thirteen is the painful letter that somehow got attached to the end of an early uh, of the letter that is one one through chapter nine. But I don't see any need. We don't have any evidence that the, that there was ever that these some division in in what we call Second Corinthians and somehow they got put together. I think from the beginning Paul knew he still had. Some pockets of resistance and he was going to have to address that and I think that's what he does in chapters 10 through 13 so that's all the background uh, I want to do but that's the relationship oh and by the way he makes one more visit there at the end when it's all said and done knowing that the relationship was good he writes the letter but he ends up going back there and stays three months there which tells you things must have been okay and I think he writes the letter to the Romans from Corinth during that period and then he leaves there and he's on his way to Jerusalem he gets arrested there and and um, and spends the next 4 years in prison and that gets us to the end of the book of acts and we don't know for sure what happened after that but that's kind of the rest of the story so that's the background information i'm ready to get on to the text so if you want to if you want to put that up and if you want to look at your your notes again i'm through the introductory stuff and there's a little bibliography there There's a structure, that's just a quick one page, here's the overview. Here's 30,000 feet over the thing, not getting down into the details, but overview. And it's what I just, it basically just provided it for you, but let's walk through it one more time. The first two chapters uh, is the opening of the letter. Paul borrowed the letter, Greek letter form. Other people we people, we have hundreds of letters that follow essentially the same form of Paul's letters. He didn't create a new style. He used the letter form that was very prominent in the first century Greco-Roman world. That means you have an opening where you say who's sending the letter, who's writing and who's sending it, who the recipients are, and then some sort of wish, blessing, like grace and peace to you. Something like that. You get two verses of that. Then you get the thanksgiving section. Every letter that Paul writes to a church, with the exception of the letter to the Galatians, he includes a thanksgiving section. Now if he can thank God for these people, he can thank God for almost any congregation, but he didn't thank God for the church at Galatia. Where it should say, I give thanks to God or something like that, it says, Oh, you foolish Galatians. So if you're sitting there waiting on the Thanksgiving and you get a, oh, you foolish Galatians, you know the apostle's not happy with you. Then you read on in Galatians and you hear him talk about stuff like real earthy stuff. Like, you know, circumcision's an issue there. And in chapter 5, he, verse 12, he says, I just wish these people who were trying to get you to circumci- get circumcised, I just wish the knife would slip and they would emasculate themselves. Now, that, that tells you his state of mind at that point. I know your King James says, I would, they be cut off. And I, cut off's a good word there, but he doesn't mean I wish they would be cut off, like they'd be separated from you. He wants something to get cut off. And that's real earthy, but I mean, I think that all joking aside, that gives you good insight into, into the way he's feeling at that point about that church who's messing with the gospel. And that's serious business for him. Corinth, they got problems, but he can still find a reason to give thanks. And, and he does. And that's verses 3 through 11. So then, one tw- or, yeah, verses 3 through 11. Now, see the body? The body goes from 112 all the way to like 1310. That's what I just overviewed. The first seven chapters, essentially, the relationships in the, in the process of restoration... He's thankful for that. He gives them some good insight into his ministry. That's the first seven chapters after the opening and the thanksgiving. Chapters 8 and 9, that would be Roman numeral 2, is the section about the offering he's taking. And then the last section, Roman numeral 3, the power of God and Paul's weakness. And I, I hit that pretty good this morning. We'll, we'll do a little bit more of that on Wednesday night, but I, I, I hit that pretty good this morning. And then there's the conclusion, which is just a few verses, and it has a great blessing at the end, which I'll do at the end of our session here in a few minutes. So that's the big picture of the structure of the letter. So now let's get into the details of it. So we're going to, if you open up there uh, to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, if I say 2 Corinthians, it's okay, okay? Trust me, I'm not here in any way to defend Donald Trump. Uh, I'm, not, I'm making no political speeches or anything doing 2 Corinthians. But it's not a faux pas to say 2 Corinthians. Every British scholar I've ever known says 2 Corinthians. Uh, so 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, not the big dumb mistake uh, that it seemed like everybody was saying. I was teaching 2 Corinthians and Enid the day he spoke at Liberty in January, and and he said 2 Corinthians. And man, everybody was just hammering that, and I'm thinking, well, I say 2 Corinthians all the time. And I'm not even running for president. But if I say 2 Corinthians, I, first of all, I'm not taking a shot at anybody. I will actually say that, and if somebody else says that, they should not be ridiculed for it. It's okay. 2 Corinthians, Second Corinthians, either way. Now, 2 Corinthians... Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 is the opening. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy our brother. So there's the senders. It's Paul who designates himself an apostle here, which he does in 9 of his 13 letters. That's one of the, you know, if you said, Paul, who are you? It's not going to take him long to get around to apostle. That's an important designation for him. It speaks to what God has called him to. And he's just amazed that God has called him to, to, to be his apostle. In light of he was a violent man, he was persecuting the church. It matters to Paul that, that God had called him to be his apostle. And not everyone is designated apostle. It's a relatively small group of individuals that includes the 12 that were with Jesus. And then some others who were involved in the foundational you know, building up of the church initially. And then Timothy who who seems to be his closest companion in letter writing. Uh, And in six of his 13 letters, he mentions Timothy as as a co-sender of the letter. And we don't know exactly what role Timothy might have played. He may have even helped Paul compose the letter, and I think the inspiration could work in both Paul and Timothy if Timothy participated in some way, but they're sending it together. To the church of God that is in Corinth, including all the saints throughout Achaia, so that's the city of Corinth and the surrounding uh, province that that it's part of. And he calls them saints. And it, it's almost mind-boggling. Did you hear all the problems I was telling you they had and that he's talking about in 1 Corinthians? He calls them saints there too. They just seem about as unsaintly as any church that you could ever find in the ancient world. And, and I think this is, we know about them, and it's good because one, I think we... Tend to idealize the, the first church as if they didn't have any problems. My goodness, they had problems of all kinds. They had sexual immorality. They had theological issues. They had all sorts of problems. It's been true from the beginning, um, and yet he called them saints, and, and it works against this idea that sainthood is something you achieve by your own moral, is something you can generate out of your own moral activity. You know, that if you can achieve a certain level of obedience to God, then you deserve the title saint. I think the Catholic Church doesn't help us much here. You know, if you have four confirmed miracles or, you know, and, and you get nominated by the right folks, the Pope can declare you a saint. And, and, and everybody then comes to think of saint as a term you would use for like super Christian. And that is not a New Testament uh, definition of the term, term saint. Every believer is called a saint. It does not have to do with performance, it has to do with what God has designated you. It means to be set apart, it means to be dedicated to God. It, it doesn't have to do with any kind of moral activity that you can generate of your own doing. Holiness. Sanctification is something that God is, calls us to and calls out of us. It's not something we can do on our own moral activity. So I do not like the way we think about sainthood. You are a saint if you have committed your life to Jesus. Now does that have anything to do with the way you live your life? Yes, it should. It should be the highest motivation to now live that way. Not because you have to achieve a certain level to be that. It's because he has already designated you that. Now go be it. Live up to what he's called you. You're a saint. Now live that way. That's the highest motivation I know. And there's grace in it. And it's not about my own moral activity that causes me to be called saint. If he can call them saint, anybody can be called saint who's a believer. Now go be that. And then he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is a word that appears 18 times in 2 Corinthians. It's an important theme in this letter. We're going to see it. And then peace, if any church needs peace to be blessed upon them, it's this congregation that's given to disunity and disharmony. So there's the opening. Let's move on into the little Thanksgiving section here that comprises verses 3 through 11. And there is one theme that runs its way through this Thanksgiving section. And it is comfort in the midst of affliction. Do you notice how much this morning, how, how the sermon focused on, how chapters 11, 12 focus on, focused on Paul's suffering? He gives that long list of all the afflictions and the suffering he endured. But did he seem to be complaining about it? Was it like he was mad because he'd suffered so much? Did it seem like God had left him alone in all those things? Not at all. He talks a great deal about suffering and affliction in 2 Corinthians, but always it's tempered with the comfort that God has given him in his affliction. And that's going to be the theme of this little Thanksgiving section. So it starts at verse 3. Verses 3 through 7 is a very general statement of the comfort that God gives us in the midst of our afflictions. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Okay, there's one. Who comforts us in all our affliction. So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Five times he's used the word for comfort in two verses, three and four. For just as the sufferings of Christ are abundant for us, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. If we are being afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are being comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we are also suffering. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. So it's almost as if he's doing a little accounting here, he's doing spiritual accounting. And and on the the books, there is the suffering of Christ, the sufferings of Jesus. And there's a surplus there. Christ didn't just suffer a little. He didn't only suffer the minimum. He suffered abundantly. So you look on the ledger there, sufferings of Christ, there's a surplus. And then you look in the column that's marked comfort. Comfort comfort for us in our suffering and guess what there's a surplus there too and the reason why there's a surplus there is because there's a surplus in Christ's sufferings somehow we find comfort in our sufferings because Christ suffered for, for us his sufferings on our behalf are the means by which we find comfort in our own sufferings And the reason why there's abundant comfort for us is because there was abundant suffering. There's a direct correlation between the suffering of Jesus and the comfort that we experience in our own suffering. Now that's the theme of of these verses 3 through 7. Here's a couple other inferences I would draw from it. First of all, comfort is not a feeling. If you expect that when you hurt, That God's comfort means you'll stop hurting. Uh, I I think we're misunderstanding the nature of the comfort that we receive in our affliction. Comfort is a gift of God that sustains us through our suffering. It doesn't mean that the suffering ceases or that the pain ceases. It, It is the gift of God that God gives us so that we can endure our sufferings. If you expect God's comfort to be like a warm bed on a cold night. I think we misunderstand the nature of comfort. It is God sustaining us. It is God carrying us through our sufferings. That's the nature of the comfort that Paul talks about. I would say second of all. It is not only for our personal benefit. You don't just get comforted. For your own comfort. But God is comforting you. Yes to provide you comfort. But also to provide comfort to others who are suffering in a similar way that you are suffering. Our comfort is one of the means by which God comforts others. If God has sustained you through your suffering. If you have been afflicted in a certain way. And God has brought you through it. That's good, and it was for you, but now you should use that experience to comfort others who are suffering in a similar way. Uh, I can tell you, and it happened in this congregation multiple times, no church where I've ever been was more concerned about how my mother was doing when she had her stroke than this church. And inevitably, somebody, more than one person, would come and talk to me during the week whenever I'd be teaching here, during that period when my mother was in the nursing home after she'd had that stroke. People would come up and say, I know what you're going through. My mother had a stroke. My husband had a stroke. Some family member, some loved one. And you stand there and you talk to them and they tell you about the experience and you're thinking, yes, that's what we went through. Yeah, that's what happened with my mom. Yeah, my mom's a lot like that too. It's not easy to explain how. I can't, I, I can't really put words to it, but I would go away from those conversations feeling encouraged. Now, lots of people say, sorry about your mother, but there was something about someone talking, speaking into my life who had had that experience. And maybe God had already brought them through it, or maybe God was just currently sustaining them through it, and it just gives you encouragement that's even hard to put into words. So don't just get your little encouragement and then go hold on to it like, I'm so glad God comforted me here. Now you have a responsibility to share that comfort with others who might be suffering in a similar way. And I get this, I had a student in my office on Friday afternoon who was talking about some, um, I guess you could say mental health issues he'd suffered. And sort of at the end of that he said, but I wouldn't change it. He said, I can't tell you how many times I've been able to encourage someone else who's going through similar kinds of experiences. And he said, I wouldn't be able to do that if I hadn't had the experience. I said, that's 2 Corinthians. I mean, that's, that's precisely what we should be doing with the comfort God has given us. And then the third thing I would say is, you cannot gauge by the amount of suffering someone endures how spiritual they are! You, you can't gauge someone's spirituality by the amount of suffering they endure. We all sort of have this common thinking that if you really suffer, God must be upset with you. Somebody who just goes through more suffering than others—that God must be punishing them. You see it in Scripture. I mean, John 9, a man born blind, and they're asking, who sinned that this, his parents, the, who sinned that this person's born this way? Assuming that suffering is God's judgment. The flip side of that would be prosperity would be a sign of God's blessing, of God's pleasure. And that's not true either. So we need to throw all that out. Suffering is not a sign of God's displeasure. If so, Paul really did not like Paul. No one suffered more than he did. But here's the trick. His opponents are saying, you can't trust Paul's authority as an apostle because he suffers so much. He can't be from God. God can't be pleased with a man who suffers that much. Paul responds, On the contrary, my suffering affirms the fact that I am God's apostle. The suffering is an affirmation. It's part of Paul's defense that he is a genuine apostle because he does suffer. Because God uses suffering for his purposes. What is suffering? The foundational story of Christianity. What does it involve? We're coming up on it real fast here. We're going to have Good Friday here in just a couple weeks. The foundational story and image of our whole faith system is a cross. And I know we wear them around our necks. We post them prominently at places where it looks like that it's an instrument of great joy and glory. And it is for us. But you know what a cross was? An instrument of execution. I mean, it's like an electric chair in, in, in the first century. That's, that's our story. We see it as a, the greatest victory God ever won. And it's a picture of suffering. God works his purposes through suffering. You don't have to look any further than Jesus. You look all through scripture. How about Joseph? Was Joseph a bad man that God was really angry at so he did bad things to him? No. And yet he's sold by his brothers, ends up enslaved in Egypt, but then rises up to second in command and saves his family in a time of famine. And at the end of Genesis, there's that line, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Suffering. The Job story in the New Testament, you got a man like John the Baptist. (laughs) Was God mad at him? Was it some failure on his part? No. No, no man, no man, no greater man born of woman than John the Baptist and he was beheaded. So we, we need to dismiss this sort of conventional wisdom. That if you are prosperous, that means that God is pleased with you. And if you are suffering, it means that God is displeased. The opposite could be true. God works his purposes through suffering. And then Paul finishes out that Thanksgiving section by talking about how God had comforted him specifically In his own afflictions. So here's the word as we uh, conclude tonight. You might be suffering. And it might be your own. It might be a family member. It might be a, a, a son or daughter. It could be mental health. It could be physical illness. It could be disease. It could be financial distress. It could be almost anything. We suffer in so many ways in a fallen world. Here's what Paul could thank God for. Here's a man who knew suffering. He could thank God for the abundant sufferings of Jesus. Which means there's abundant comfort for us in the midst of our sufferings. And God is working his purposes in your life And he'll use that suffering to do it. You remember this morning? It's one of the ways that God weans me off of me. It's one of the ways God conforms us to the image of Jesus. We don't grow when everything's good. The greatest times of growth will be times of suffering and distress, and nobody wants them. We don't pray, God, send me suffering. But when it comes, you can know that God is doing something in it that is for our good and His glory. And His comfort is abundant in the midst of our sufferings. He will carry us through. So as I'm going to do every night, I'm just going to end with the uh, Corinthian benediction. Now, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ The love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.